We continue in our sermon series today looking at how we live in a culture and world that's been shaped by the Christian faith but tends to ignore uh, how many values flow from the life and teachings of Jesus himself. So our goal these weeks is to recognize how Uh, How recognizing the values established by Jesus lead us to become better reflections of our Savior and representatives of his kingdom in a world that seems not just lost but broken. Uh, We live in a culture that seems to have some vague ideas of what it means to be good, what it means to be Christian, what it means to, to love one another. But they have an issue tracing those things back to the source. But knowing these values are rooted in Jesus help us to embody the practices of our God's kingdom and help us walk with our God who not only defines what matters but teaches us what it means to flourish as his children. Uh, So our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 verses 11 through 17. It's the healing uh, of a widow's son Uh, and we read this. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Bain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, do not weep. Then he went up and he touched the bier that they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That morning, no one had planned for a celebration. In our passage this morning, Luke records an encounter that Jesus has with a widow in the middle of a funeral procession as her community comes along to bury her son. Normally, this would be a solemn moment reflecting the tragedy of a young man's death. The first moments of a season filled with grief, a public event designed to express the sorrow of the town and their commitment, their solidarity with this widow who now, it seems, is fully alone. We don't actually know a whole lot about the dead man inside. There's no wife or children crying, only a mother, a widow who is mourning with deep sadness. The crowd leaving the city gates, heading to lay someone they clearly loved into the grave, carried more than generic sadness. They left town weighed down by the despair of living in this broken world. They carried not just a coffin, but tangible evidence of the terrible reality of death. But as they left the city, they encountered a rival crowd with a very different tone. I want you to imagine these two crowds meeting at a crossroads just outside the city limit. Led by Jesus and the disciples, the crowd moving toward the city had followed this young rabbi from the town of Capernaum. 
Now, at this point in his ministry, people had flocked, had started to flock to Jesus to be healed, to be blessed, to listen, or just satisfy their curiosity about this young rabbi with a reputation for doing miracles. Immediately before our passage, Jesus had healed the servant of a Roman centurion. And that was remarkable in its own right. A Roman centurion was a a political leader who stood outside the family of Israel. But this one had personally earned the respect of the Jewish people in that town. Now, contrary to established military and even social protocols, this centurion recognized Jesus carried a uniquely divine authority, and so he went and begged him for a miracle. Outside of religious expectation, but impressed by his faith, Jesus heals the servant, which in turn, uh, that turns the city upside down with amazement and joy. A miracle like that, no matter the recipient, revealed that Jesus was more than just the latest religious teacher. To the people of that town, the people of the crowd coming to Nain, Jesus is at the very least like the prophets of old, worthy to be celebrated and followed. Carrying power to heal like Elijah or Elisha, Jesus also spoke about God and his kingdom with supernatural authority and insight. The miracle declared God might just be doing something new in Jesus. And that meant something amazing might happen again at any time. The people's excitement can be seen in their investment in the journey that they took along with Jesus and the disciples from Capernaum, located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, all the way to Nain, about 30 miles southwest. Now, traveling that distance confirms the crowd's commitment to being near Jesus and seeing what would happen next. But their pursuit is even more incredible when you consider the geography between these two cities. So Capernaum uh, is a coastal town. It rests 600 feet uh, below sea level on the Sea of Galilee, um, so very low, while Nain sits about 700 feet above. So that meant a very difficult uphill climb. And the entire crowd, most of the city of Capernaum, it seems like, uh, followed Jesus on this 30-mile uphill climb. And that journey with all those people probably took a day, maybe two. But the crowds still followed Jesus, hoping to see another healing or, or listen to Jesus talk more about God and his plans to save the world. And then making it finally, or at least almost to their destination, this devoted and joyful crowd finds the entire town leaving the city to mourn. Now, had this been a normal interaction, the incoming crowd would have stood aside as a sign of respect to the crowd that's grieving. But something else happens instead that nobody in either crowd expected. And this collision of people, the love of God, shines through when Jesus takes pity on the widow and brings her son back to life. Now, what's interesting is that half the crowd knew a miracle was possible, right? Half the crowd knew uh, Jesus was doing, could do some amazing things. But no one expected Jesus would have, uh, no one 
except Jesus, would have expected the man lying dead to rise again alive. Right? We would not have expected that either if we were in the crowd. Funerals are never canceled. I've never gotten a cancellation to a funeral. Nobody has. I don't think even the extreme planners in that crowd would have been prepared. Nobody was thinking, well, it's a funeral, so I should wear my dark mourning robes. But what if it unexpectedly turns into a party? Maybe I should bring a side dish or a bottle of wine just in case. Right. Nobody was expecting this to imagine the dead man suddenly sitting up in his coffin alive was absurd. People do not come back to life after they die. But Jesus looked at the woman and he saw her sorrow and he brought the son back anyway. In a split second, the tone of the crowd shifts from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other. Joy confronts and overcomes despair. Adoration replaces lamentation. Tears of sadness turn into tears of utter relief and gladness. No one had expected a party But everyone found themselves celebrating, praising the goodness of God who moved through this man they called Jesus in a uniquely powerful way. But the grandness of this miracle nearly overshadows something even more important. Jesus uses divine power to bring a widow's son back to life, but his great love here should astound us even more. All of us understand the sorrow of the widow and the people uh, at this funeral because we all at some point have experienced the shadow of death and the pain of suffering in our own lives, too. We know how broken this world can be. But the compassion Jesus shows to this widow and throughout the Gospels to all people shows us that suffering and death breaks the heart of our God more deeply than it breaks ours. Ever since the garden, a shadow has hung over this world. As someone who experienced the tragedy and beauty of human existence on a personal level, Jesus recognizes that death is a disturbing aberration of God's original plan for his children. But the helplessness of his children living in a broken creation breaks our God's heart so deeply he sends his own son to die so his children might live. Matthew 9 defines the level of sympathy and love that Jesus has for his people. He, uh, we read this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Author Glenn Scrivener writes, In the Gospels, the word that describes Jesus' emotional life more than any other is compassion. The authors had to reach for an odd Greek word to describe the depth of feeling that Jesus most often experienced. A verb form of the word for intestines or guts. When describing love, we moderns speak romantically of the heart, but ancient people knew the deepest feelings are experienced in the very center of us. Such stomach-turning pity and love 
was so obvious in Jesus, the gospel writers continually spoke of it. Whenever he brought healing, restoration, or new life, we are told that he was moved with gut-level compassion. This moment, however, doesn't only reveal how deeply God loves his children. The compassion Jesus shows here provides a model for how we are to extend compassion in our own life in three distinct ways. First is this. Jesus practically and he proactively extends compassion. In the middle of the road, amidst the tumult of two very large crowds, uh, Jesus notices one person most of all. He notices the widow. His grace was not passive or even reactive, but actively moves toward this woman with practical intention. Her sorrow captivates his attention and moves him to restore that which she thought was lost forever. Jesus goes to the widow. He encourages her not to weep, and then he commands the son to get up and live. Uh, Reformer Wilhelmus Abrekel wrote, uh, read only the Gospels and you will uh, perceive that all his footsteps were nothing but mercy. He was not merely moved for his compassion culminated in deeds. The feelings that he had resulted in action. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He gave the oppressed their dead again. He traversed the country doing good. And in doing so, he left us an example that we would follow in his footsteps. And Jesus, a loving God, touches broken humanity to heal and save and make new. We, too, are called to extend compassion in similar ways to anyone we might meet. Jesus desires His disciples are known not just for their compassionate feelings for all people, both family and friends and even enemies, but action. Jesus wants us to be known by our love, which leads us to meet the needs of others. I think my mic died. Did it die? Got me? That's better. So Jesus desires his disciples are known not just for their compassionate feelings for all people, but their actions. So Jesus wants us to be known by our love, and that leads us to meet the needs of others with tangible deeds. Uh, Andrew Purvis, who's a, a theologian, wrote that compassion means getting involved in another person's life for healing and wholeness. The logic of compassion we see in the Gospels moves from deep feeling... Uh, for another who was suffering to a ministering work of some kind. In every instance where Jesus has compassion, every time this word shows up in the Gospels, it is also reported he engaged in a subsequent act of ministry. When Jesus moves in and through us, our compassion matures just from feeling into action. Second, the compassion of Jesus makes us restless when we see others in need. So in our Christian walk, we are at first compassionate because he commands us to be compassionate. We do that because we know that our God wants us to do it. But as time goes on, we are not only empowered to act as Christ might act, but learn to feel 
as Jesus might feel. Over time, that deep inner stirring the Lord feels here starts to filter into our lives with a restless urgency. We start to feel moved deep down when we see another person suffering. A historian, David Bentley Hart, describes the Christian pattern of establishing centers of healing uh, as evidence of this kind of deep sympathy for others. He writes, medical care didn't originate with Christians, but they developed something new, medical care for anyone who was suffering. When Edessa was ravaged by a plague, believers established hospitals open to all the afflicted, not just the people who had wealth. Basil the Great founded a vast clinic for the care of lepers whom he often nursed with his own hands. In the Middle Ages, the Benedictines alone established more than 2,000 hospitals across Europe. These movements, caring for those in need and tending to the sick, were thoroughly Christian because they reached out to everyone who was hurting. Anyone who was hurting, they would help. Real compassion never passively watches other people collapse under the weight of this broken world. And real compassion never holds back when someone else is suffering. We often see uh, this kind of love, this kind of uh, compassion in moments of crisis. Uh, This past week, uh, a wildfire uh, struck um, the island of Maui, nearly without warning. I'm sure you all have seen uh, pictures and heard stories. Now, I don't know the faith of anyone involved in this story, but one particular instance seemed to symbolize the Christ-like compassion we're called to embody anyway. And so I wanted to share that story. So attempting to escape the fire, one man stumbled across a family of seven who were on vacation, uh, seemingly overcome by, that, by the chaos. They didn't know where to go. And so grabbing their attention, he led them into the only safe place that he could think of, which was the ocean. They waited there for three hours before the Coast Guard eventually uh, rescued them and pulled them out of the water onto a boat. In a disaster that would surely take their lives, a stranger directed this entire family to safety, recognizing that salvation could be found in only one direction. He met their immediate need with practical action, and he led them to safety. But what moved me most was that he stayed with them in the water. And he held the youngest child, the two-year-old son, in his arms, clinging to his neck as the waves crashed around them and the fire raged on shore. On that day, this man embodied the compassion and the love of God. He took care of a family that was in desperate need, and he led them to the only place he knew that was safe. Even the Red Cross, which is not now an explicitly Christian organization, even though it has a large cross on its emblem, has a tagline that sounds suspiciously like a summary of the Good Samaritan. And I like this tagline a lot because it seems to embody what Jesus uh, did in his own life. Their tagline is refusing to ignore people in crisis. That's the kind of compassion that we're called to have as believers in this life, to care for other people. 
Finally, the last thing that we learn from this miracle is that practicing compassion points back to the goodness of God. Notice the major reaction of the two crowds now combined in celebration. Their first reaction is to offer praise to the goodness of God. The people recognized God's great mercy and the resurrection of the widow's son, not only because his man was alive, which again should be shocking, but because God through Jesus had relieved this widow's suffering. That is the power of this particular miracle. That is the power of compassion when it is practiced in this world by believers. The people saw Jesus extend kindness and they rejoiced because God had not forgotten his children. The immediate result of his compassion actually extends beyond the crowd itself. News spreads throughout the entire region of Judea about what had happened who had done this amazing thing and what this healing rabbi was saying about the coming kingdom of God. The entire area learned about what God was doing through the deliberate actions of Jesus. They learned more about the love of God. We are called to extend compassion in the same way today, and we should expect similar results. The expectation to care for those in need still exists in our world today. The world looks around. There are still people who think and say we should take care of everybody else. But when believers, people who follow Jesus, go beyond the minimum standard of care and stand in the places where no one else will, bringing aid and comfort to people everyone else has forgotten the love of God is declared to a lost and broken world. Church, our compassion, how we treat one another, how we address the needs of those who are suffering reflects the character of God to a desperate world. So let us practice this kind of deliberate love with one another, with our neighbors, even our enemies and strangers. Let us love like he loves so all might know the love of God and praise him. Hallelujah. Amen.